Hi professors, this is Sammy Doxy, and I'm a sophomore screen studies major at Clark University. Recommended for you this week is the film Twilight. This cinematic masterpiece is from 2008, made in the U.S. and directed by Catherine Hardwick. The film stars Kristen Stewart, Robert Pattinson, and Taylor Lautner. I'm recommending this film for you because it's arguably the most influential cinematic saga in film history. This film has a super distinct tint and a banger soundtrack. I hope you guys like it. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University screen studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. Welcome to RFU. Rock Summer here. I'm wondering if we all just want to... Brief introductions. Who are you two? I'm Hugh Mannon. I'm Soren Sorensen. We're here to talk about Twilight. So Sammy Doxy suggested this, as you all heard at the top of the show. You know, we've decided to call this podcast Recommended for You, RFU, but I think there's a little extra FU in the selection by Sammy. Just a little extra. I don't think it's malicious or anything. I'm just saying there's a little bit of a jab in this to the professors, and I'm totally, I'm there for it. Did we have expectations or why Why hadn't we seen this? I, I don't want to, I think we should sort of, you know, not say obviously we didn't see it because I don't think that's actually our attitude. Um, for me, it really comes with a sort of biographical, I don't know, or temporal temporality point in that I was just it was I was not the right age I was just too old for this to be cool you know this is something that like my younger sibling and my younger cousins uh were enthusiastic about and excited about and sort of for that very reason I could not you know care less even as like similar films from just five or ten years prior I I was there (laughs) opening weekend um so yeah, it, uh, you know, sort of a twenty-something dismissiveness of the genre um, of being too cool and too old to to care. Um, but I imagine you guys had different reasons yourselves. Well, Hugh and I were e- even older and and not as cooler, probably. But um, yeah, being thirty-three years old when this came out, I mean, it really just wasn't made for me. I mean, I, you know, and so I it's it flew completely under the radar in a way. Um, maybe in a way that like Harry Potter didn't because of how big it was and how I knew so many people that were reading those books. Um, but something like Twilight, I knew that my sister had the books. Um, and that she had seen the films, but she didn't dare suggest that we ever watch them together and we get together and watch movies all the time. We never, I don't think we ever even entertained the notion of watching um, one of these films, but I was, it was a welcome idea to watch it for sure. Yeah. I mean, I I was 40 when it came out and you know, the, the subsequent films after it and really just completely not in any kind of mindset to have even considered watching this. Although, I mean, I definitely had exposure to it through like late night talk shows, kind of endlessly making fun of it, especially after the sequels and so forth. But my attitude toward it was just like, this can't possibly be anything that I would want to watch. And so in watching it, like, I think my reaction to it, especially given some time, given the fact that some time has passed is, you know, just weirdly ambivalent. Like I'm watching it and I'm kind of thinking, yeah, this is exactly what I thought it would be. And this is at, at the same time, absolutely not what I thought it would be. I mean, it it surprised me in a a bunch of different ways, which is maybe something we should take up now. Yeah. So what what were the surprises for you, Hugh? So look, two words. Why baseball? (laughs) Since when do vampires like baseball? Well, it's the American pastime. And uh, there's a thunderstorm coming. It's the only time we can play. 
Like, what on earth is happening at the midpoint of this film where all of a sudden there's like a baseball game? And furthermore, you know, it's not even just that. It's like embedded in the film, like at various points that baseball matters, right? So that um, her, Kristen Stewart's, uh, Bella's stepfather is a minor league baseball player. Why? Like, why is that? Is that a thing in like Washington State or is this or Arizona, I guess, in that case? Like, why is this something that we need to be aware of? And then ultimately to bust out the baseball equipment and to go up in the middle of some pasture in the mountains someplace and play a game of baseball. Just just the craziest, strangest idea I could pot. Like, it, it's a non sequitur to end all non sequiturs. Right. In, in, a, in a thunderstorm, too. Yeah. They, they have to have it in a thunderstorm because they hit the ball so hard that the noise will just rocket through the valley and the, tr- and the mountains and everything. And it's just um, but but, you know, Kristen Stewart's character, Bella, asks that question, like why baseball at some point sort of. And they, he says it's America's pastime. Right. That's the answer, which is like, I guess that's the question to why baseball in real life, too. Like, for, you know, forget about the film. It's like, why baseball? Well, just what we've been doing for a long time. Um, but yeah, and I, I and I think I wanted to bring up too uh, that that it, it is difficult because I mean I, I assume that my colleagues haven't read these young adult novels, um, and nor have they seen the sequels, and so we could be stepping in sort of fertile territory for making fun of us because of course baseball because it's all answered in movie number four or something like you know you know and i think there's a famous basketball sequence i was doing a little half-assed internet research and um i think there might be another sports sequence um in these films coming up so i you know if if we if we like to watch the sequels in a in a couple months or years yeah i mean i think the why baseball is because of uh, america and americanization and american ideology and i you know, to be the person who takes that first Freudian step, I think it also has a bit to do with sex and death and the need to repress one's monstrous desires. And how do you do that? But do the most American apple pie PG thing uh, together as a family, and that's play play baseball. Um, surprises for me, I, th- I, th- I think, you know, in terms of, plot and what I gleaned about the plot um it was sort of on par although I'll say like I was expecting a little bit more triangulation uh of love desires and romantic interests I thought this was big team Edwards team Jacob's territory and Jacob really doesn't get too much screen time or too much of Bea's uh or Bella's interest um but yeah, plot was where pretty much where I expected it. Dialogue was pretty much where I expected it. But I was really surprised, like visually, uh, with like the visual design of this film. And I was kind of uh, blown away by some of the cinematography, some of the lighting choices. And that might seem really silly, but it's just not an expectation I had for for innovation, for all the handheld camera work and canted angles and. Um, not just being used in the most cliche spots, but sort of throughout and consistently. And this greenish tint that I think works really well for the setting and the context, uh, you know, and maybe maybe it's uh, two years away from the Pacific Northwest that's making me feel a little nostalgic. And therefore, I'm, I'm there for the moss. I'm there for the trees. And I'm there for the green lighting. But I think it also works thematically around like around our our subject matter of, you know, the undead so that they're that sort of like whiter than white and greener, (laughs) bluer whiteness uh, throughout is fitting for the place and sort of maybe even enables a, for, you know, 
allows for the ridiculousness with which their you know skin tone is depicted that it sort of it all like they all are to a certain extent even as the vampires stand out um well, yeah they're sort of they, they fit in even as they stand out too um so i was i was surprised um and i think the scene in particular about 50 minutes in where bella and edward like skip off the school grounds and really confront each other around who they are and what they want um, was shot kind of, you know, there's like a little experimental film in the middle of this like narrative feature that I was, I was down for and I was surprisingly surprised to find. I, I got to say that in that, in the middle of that sequence, um, as they're sort of walking to the place where they're going to lay down, like she all of a sudden trips, she trips over a root. And I thought, well, that's just a gaff. Like, why is that in this film? And, and little did I know that that's like the whole plot resolution of the film is that she's able to disclaim the whole thing by pretending that she slipped and fell and fell through a window because she's clumsy and she falls on the ice also. And so there's this kind of thread of her clumsiness um, just being oddly misplaced. I, I just, again, I, it strikes me as kind of this strange narrative non sequitur, but I, I want to come back quickly to rocks, your point about like just the colors. Like, so if you were going to do, so obviously this is a film that's interested in the Gothic and with goth per se, right? So there's goth makeup in this film. Um, and that kind of goes without saying, but it seems like what they're doing is they're going for, they're trying to maybe, um, produce or evoke a goth aesthetic in color. And so the way they do that is rather than going black, white, and red, they go green and white and and red to some extent. And I think that those colors do the work that a kind of more binary goth, goth aesthetic that you would have seen like back in the eighties aimed for. And I do think it really works. Although, you know, it's interesting choice that green, I mean, they could have picked any color to do that with, but green is the color of nature and it's the one that they use to kind of, get get this gothness this goth aesthetic up on its feet i was sort of waiting for a boat to be going by and some and some soldiers in vietnam to be searching for colonel kurtz though i i, I was like is a is a tiger gonna burst out of the you know the rainforest here and what state are we in again and um i, I yeah i don't know and 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 i think michael bay would have been really impressed with the camera movement in some of the scenes there was some uh really unmotivated camera movement where rocks charitably referred to it as an experimental film being dropped in the middle of this and to, to me it was just like maybe they were covering up some some framing errors or some continuity <laughs> issues but um but yeah it's like accidental tony Scott. yeah it was like <laughs> we're gonna circle around the face and here and it's like and w- what's actually happening here is just a lot of expository dialogue which is necessary in a first film and as you said that i had the same idea with the triangulation or the love triangle thing which is like there's going to be a lot more about T- taylor lautner's character but of course we have to wait for the sequels you know so th- that's why it's a difficult film to talk about for our expectations because of course it's going to thwart our expectations because it's a saga you know, it's not it's not a standalone film. It doesn't really maybe it doesn't work as a standalone film. I want to defend my experimental film reading. And I like the camera that's swirling through the forest as they stand not facing each other. And she's delineating who what she knows about him in a list. And he's saying, just say it, just say it like what it's performance. Who why are they not facing each other? Um, why are they wearing the same outfit? It's it feels very theatrical, but also, you know, yeah. maximalist and minimalist simultaneously. You're impossibly fast and strong. Your skin is pale white and ice cold. Your eyes change color. 
And sometimes you speak like, like you're from a different time. You never eat or drink anything. You don't go out in the sunlight. How old are you? Seventeen. How long have you been seventeen? So if I'm going to give this film all the benefit of the doubt in the world, that's kind of where I would go. So in a sense, it's like, so I would take it kind of in, in the direction of the acting, especially in the early scenes where they first meet in the class, the chemistry or the bio class. Right. And so they're kind of looking at each other and he's like just filled with revulsion. Right. It's it's absolutely bizarre. So he just sees her and immediately like he looks like he's going to vomit and then he just disappears from school for three days. And I, I, I kind of feel like if you were to watch that opening act of the film and sort of assume that this is a world without vampires, it's like the funniest comedy in the world. Like she shows up, he sees her and he's so filled with revulsion that he has to physically leave the room and disappear from school for three days just because of how appalling she is, apparently. But at the same time, the acting between the two of them is like on the verge of like expressionism. And I mean, what I mean by that is they're so twitchy, like she's so erotically charged that she literally looks like she's going to jump out of her own skin. And it makes me nervous to watch. And to me, that's expressionism. Like I'm getting nervous about her performance and her performance is psychologically manipulating me into being nervous. And I think it's like, it's either neorealism, which it doesn't really appear like, or some some sort of odd uh, actorly expressionism. And I think it absolutely, and the scene you're describing, Rox, is exactly that, right? So, like, they're looking away from each other, you know, making these declarations and so forth, and it's just utterly non, it's unnatural uh, and kind of uncanny, and I think it absolutely works on that level. Well, and then you get the, the speed piggyback ride up the hill, which, and I'm not sure when in the history of cinema, vampires as their athletic prowess being featured so much. Like this was like, he's going to demonstrate how quick he is and how he can jump really far and basically fly. And there's all this kind of, um, you know, nonsense about him, you know, putting, putting on this show for her. Um, And then, and then the, the, the dialogue to me that sort of brought it to the level of like an abusive relationship, or at least for the, where it really clinched it was, well, I've killed people. And she says, it's okay. You know, it's like, I'm designed to kill her. It's like, I trust you. Like, it was just, I was just like, you should get out of there probably. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I was rooting for them to be together during this film um, by that scene. Yeah. Rox, I know you're teaching gender and film this semester. And so I have a question because I, and this, this will seem like, like I'm, I'm like a one trick pony with my, my analysis with these things, which is this, this character reminded me of, uh, um, you know, of, of Indiana Jones and the temple of doom. Like it, it reminded me of Bella's character rather. It reminded me of just like somebody's that that's there to sort of bumble around and be laughed at. And I'm not pretty and I'm clumsy and I'm, I'm I don't deserve love. And I, I say that and I'm thinking, well, is that just every movie? Can we, is there a way to break out of that? This is a woman author. This is a woman director. Well, I, I don't, I mean, I guess I just was sort of wondering what your take was in terms of the gender um, roles or, you know, in this, in this film and how problematic they were compared to other things from this era, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I have, uh, deeper thoughts on that in a second. But first I'll say it's weird that you went to Indiana Jones because the other, her, uh, another Harrison Ford comparison came to my mind, which is that her Mm. voiceover reminds me of Deckard's voiceover in the 1982 uh, theatrical release of Blade Runner, where like Harrison Ford did not want to be there. He did not want to do it. It was an addition demanded by the studio and he gives the most flat, vocal delivery (laughs) and 
and it and it's unnecessary and uh, in many ways, you know, troubles what is a visually compelling narrative. And while I don't want to put Twilight on the same level as Blade Runner, <laughs> I don't think her I don't think her voiceover <laughs> is necessary, and I don't think her flat vocal delivery helps either. I'd never given much thought to how I would die, but dying in the place of someone I love seems like a good way to go. So. Um, I also had Harrison Ford, uh, <laughs> Kristen Stewart comparisons coming to mind. Uh, That's okay. I compared it to Apocalypse <laughs> Now earlier. So, you know, <laughs> elevating yeah. it to Blade Runner status is, yeah. is totally par for the course. When it comes to gender and this really like flat uh, character that we're given with Bella, um, I was actually thinking of a very different take on the gothic, uh, a very a different kind of gothic than the one that Hugh referenced earlier. And that is like the romantic gothic novel and film tradition uh, where very often we have like a compliant, like white woman, uh, <laughs> titular or otherwise protagonal character um, who is empty um, to a certain extent of, substantive personality and vigor uh, and that I believe like enables uh, an identification among women and perhaps otherly gendered spectators to sort of map themselves onto her. So Bella, yeah, one of Bella's defining characteristics is that she she's a self-identified loner despite everyone wanting to be her friend. And uh, she trips a lot and doesn't like to dance because supposedly she, it's implied she has two left feet. Well, Hugh and I can relate to that. I mean, neither of us want to be doing any dancing anytime soon. I mapped myself onto her for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she's she's cute and pretty, but not in a uh, especially threatening or overwhelming way. So she's someone that you'd like to be like, and you can sort of imagine you are like. Um, and you know, put yourself in this romantic scenario with the supposedly super hot <laughs> guy. You know, you referenced abuse, and I think he also fits the trope that, that goes along with this gothic heroine of the, like, mysterious and murderous man, perhaps a man who killed his first wife. In this case, um, you know, he's a vampire who killed to survive or to feed. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you did you screen Rebecca just this week? I did, and, and and that's really what I'm thinking of Joan Fontaine's character. Yeah, I mean, this is like I, I I noted that as I watched it. Like, this is not a vampire film; it's a modern gothic romance, and it it's a it's the gothic in that sense, not because of the pancake makeup, but because like strange strange events happen, and Edward ends up saying to Bella, "Nobody's going to believe you." It's the ultimate modern gothic romance dialogue line and there it is like as explicit as can be and it's kind of the crux of the whole plot nobody's going to believe you or at least for the first act or so i mean what of these what of these vampires i mean i think that's actually a good line of questioning too so like this film represents vampires in a way that is completely not what i expected i had this i taught a screenwriting class at a different university years ago and um i had a student come in and, and say all right dig this. I got this pitch for you. And I'm like, okay, this is in front of the whole class. And he says, all right, this is a vampire movie. But the thing is they can go out in the daytime. Yeah. They can see themselves in mirrors. No problem. They're not killed by a stake through the heart. And I said, then it's not a vampire movie. That's just some guy. 
And that's what this film is like. So in some ways, these are vampires who have learned not to be vampires. But also, I mean, the film plays really fast and loose with the vampire trope in the sense that here's vampires out walking around. And as long as it's cloudy, no problem. Yeah, yeah. You can't get a sunburn when it's cloudy. I'm telling my kid all the time, like, of course you right. can. It's not It's not about the, the sunlight. It's about the rays, you know? Like, they can't go out in the sun during the yep. day and go to high school. Like, well, it's and, not and, and even when they're in the sun, what happens? They just get all glittery and, and kind of cool looking. So that's not a vampire. You're beautiful. I like you even more like this. You're not disintegrating in some grotesque way. See, I knew about the sparkles. And uh, yeah, that was a special effect that I wasn't impressed by. I, I was expecting bigger sparkles, brighter sparkles, like queerer sparkles. He like, and no, he just like went to a disco last night yeah. and woke up. It wasn't even like Swarovski level, you know? No. <laughs> I have a serious point I haven't made. I don't know if I. So one thing that we haven't talked about is that we haven't talked about indigeneity in this film and whiteness beyond the aesthetics of hyper whiteness and blue tones, green toned skin. Uh, But I was very thrown by the backstory that Jacob gives Bella about the animosity between the Cullens uh, and his family or his tribe. And in fact, we get this sort of flashback uh, to an animal murder scene where the wolves uh, meet the Collins, and we're told that they are of another clan. And I'm like, clan with a C or clan with a K? Because this hyper whiteness and Bella's immediate magnetic attraction to Edward, I can't help but read as hyper racialized along lines of whiteness to the extreme but good whiteness and whiteness that's keeping its violence contained and being like rewarded or applauded for doing as much when speaking as a white pacific northwesterner no high schools in that part of the country are that diverse and so i think that's really exciting that there's all these asian and black and latinx friends uh and indigenous folks around and yet that her sights are set so immediately on the literal whitest person in this space despite what he reveals to her about his past um, and his behavior and his desires and intentions towards her speaks to like something really ominous going on here that's beyond the gender dynamics that we discussed earlier or is this a film about white femininity's complicity and eroticization of of whiteness and white supremacy. Well, it's the the meat cute. It works exactly along these terms, right? So it's it's for him. We we find out later it's her smell, and for her, clearly, it's his white face. The the ultra white pancake makeup goth face. That sort of catches her eye when she walks in the room. His, br- br- his brown eyes, right? His hunt. What did, what did she call his? Yeah, and, and yeah. the eyes. Yeah, yeah. And they change from black to brown. And they change color, right? Yeah. Um, I I wanted maybe Hugh to bring up some of the more uh, um, esoteric details, maybe stuff that may, maybe would have passed by and anyone else. Maybe your your, your close read um, uh, senses were going off, and you want us to have a have a listen to any of those observations. Yeah, I mean, I think like my experience of this film was sort of one of 
attempting to do the thing that I do with any film that I watch either for my own research or for, you know, in classes. And, and that is to kind of advance some sort of on the fly, close reading and see what sticks. And the problem was that at certain points in this film, it absolutely fell apart. And I think what I would describe this as, as kind of impossible close reading. So it reaches a point where some detail emerges in the film and you kind of think to yourself, all right, that's very intentionally thrown in there by a writer or by production uh, design staff, and I can't make heads or tails of it. Why is this here? And so I'm going to throw one at my colleagues here and sort of see if you can explain to me why this is such an um, important thing. And I'm actually going to pair the first two. So the first one is when Bella shows up at her dad's house, she remarks, oh, right, one bathroom. So she has this recollection that there's only one bathroom in the house, and that that one bathroom is going to have to support both of them. And I think uh, a kind of related detail that kind of happens at a similar point in the film is that her and her father are in the diner, and they're both reaching for the ketchup, and they sort of touch fingers. What is going on? What is going on? <laughs> and then and then she does the same thing with Edward in the car, because that's when she finds out that he's cold, right? And there's this weird mirror where they touch hands, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the bathroom thing is just, who wants to share a bathroom with their parents? I mean, especially at that age. Yeah. Um, well, or at any age, I guess. But I, I uh, yeah, I don't know about the, the hands touching at the diner um, at all. Like that, Rox, do you have any, any uh, insights about that? No, I mean, there are weird parallels in her relationship with her father and her relationship with Edward in that there's an awkward talking against each other or at odds with each other that is still nonetheless kind of charming, or at least we're supposed to take away as charming. And they're both members of the pair are committed to moving forward. Um, so I also think before we get the bathroom line, we have the father in the car being like, your hair is shorter or longer. And she's like, I've cut it since I saw you last. And he's like, well, I guess it grew back out. And I'm like, yeah, that's how <laughs> hair works. But like, what else are we going to talk about? And then sure enough, later in the lab, like Edward's asking her about the rain. And she's like, you're asking me about the weather as if like, like we are above that, but like they aren't above that. They don't know each other. Weather is a good place to start. Um, it's really a great place to start, especially in yes. the Pacific Northwest. I mean, what you, you, you got to talk about that, right? Yeah. And they're like, "Do you like the rain?" And they're like making fun of her because she comes from Arizona, and it's like, yeah. Um, All right, so let yeah, me that's... hit you with another one. I'm going to keep them coming and, until I absolutely stump everybody. So here's the other one. So when they're on the beach and they're kind of going to have some surfing thing that doesn't really pan out. Um, in the background, you see a guy on the beach literally chasing a girl from the high school with a heavy gauge piece of rope. No. And she, you, she screams, you, what's going on? It's not rope. Um, this is an Oregonian yes, tradition, and Rox is, is going to tell us okay. about and my mom, it. It's like as a, salami or my something. My mom is going to kill me for not knowing what the name of it is, but it is a plant form that grows oh. in the ocean. Like it's a seaweed-esque uh plant that grows in the pacific ocean that's washed up on the beach and kids do chase each other around with it it. Uh, so how many how many relationships began with the chasing (laughs) of the seaweed i have found the oregon coast to be quite romantic myself i have a question no but the related why is that beach called push is that is that the real beach la push la push push is the name of a real beach in washington that however was cannon beach in oregon oh thank you so much and what about forks is that a real real it's a real town is it 
Okay, I'm glad because because if you're if you're a novelist and you're like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna write this novel and it's gonna take place in Forks yeah. and they're gonna go to the beach. What's it gonna be called? Pushed. Like it just sounds so. It's it sounded like a made up like screenwriter thing, but apparently it's can not. I, can it's I say lovely. the one other thing I'm surprised about with vampires in this, and that is why the f are they still in high school? Like, if you were to live for eternity, I would not spend it as a junior in high school and it doesn't college gotta go to college go to college sure. at least yeah and you have to explain that you have a stepfather who's also a matchmaker and you're dating and all your the siblings, step- step-siblings siblings. are dating why bother um, yeah why are they going out but why leave that beautiful house just hang out and listen to all those cds that he right. has on his and show. you know i love how they <laughs> i love how they walk into the cafeteria exactly like someone who's been in high school doing the same thing over and over again for 100 years like they're supermodels on a runway and they just walk in and yeah. it's just like damn like you can't not be it's impressed this scene here's where we make our yeah. entrance well, anyway, I could probably talk about this movie for a very long time. This was a great uh, first foray into recommended for you. Good suggestion, Sammy. Great suggestion, Sammy. Do you have any concluding thoughts? Honestly, I feel like this film is in so many ways like fractured and bent back against itself. It's kind of um, dealing in like very lofty kind of gothic tropes and discourse and at the same time dealing in like high schoolisms. It's just super hard for me to come up with any kind of like summarizing takeaway from it. Um, It leaves me feel, you know, I think this does speak back in some ways to what we were talking about with their eroticism and the kind of weird acting approach of both these people in the film. Um, It's a, it's a jittery film. It like leaves me jittery. So thanks, Sammy. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for the jitters. The Recommended For You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. If you would like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. That's 508-798-4355. Edward Cullen drives my favorite car of the past 20 years, the Volvo C30. I never owned a C30, and they don't make them anymore, and I feel like this film is just rubbing it in that I will never own one.